If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And as you're turning there, why don't you stand with me and let's pray together. Ask that God would bless the teaching of his word. Father, thank you so much for opportunity to study your word this morning. We pray that it wouldn't be just our tradition, but we would see it as time with you, that we would revere your word. God, we pray that you'd minimize distractions and you'd give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. Pray that you'd set me aside and give me grace and strength in teaching your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. This morning we're going to be talking about deliverance, and the dictionary definition of deliverance is the act or process of freeing someone or something from another's control. The children of Israel were underneath the oppression of the Philistines because of their spiritual compromise. It was more of an issue with God than it was with the Philistines. They lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark went to the Philistines. God glorified himself. Dagon fell flat on his face when the Ark of the Covenant was in the presence of this false idol. Then we find the Ark of the Covenant coming back to the children of Israel at Beth Shemesh. Remember, they were curious. They opened up the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. 50,000 men died. And that's where we pick up this story. But what we find in 1 Samuel 7 is the children of Israel turning back to God having a heart that's lamenting and sorrowful over what's taken place, and God begins to do a work of deliverance. So if you're taking notes this morning, there's three M's. It's the M and M and M, okay? So three M words to remember. The first is mourning, not like good morning, but weeping, mourning. And then message, looking at God's message for the children of Israel. And then finally, motion, God's movement of of deliverance. So would you join me in verse 1 of chapter 7? Then the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. They don't bring the ark back to Shiloh to place into the tabernacle. They leave it here on the hill of Abinadab. It will stay in this place until David brings back the Ark of the Covenant to its proper place of worship. In verse two, so it was that the Ark remained in Kirath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. We're really gonna pick up speed chronologically now in the book of 1 Samuel. Time is really going to tick by. 20 years goes by where the Ark of the Covenant is on this hill. And what we find to be now unique is the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So this is our first stop. This is our first point. Morning, Israel lamented. They got to a place where they were not content with the spiritual condition that was taking place. Remember, what does the Ark of the Covenant represent? It represents the presence of God. They're saying we're mourning over the fact that God's presence doesn't have its proper place in our land, in our lives, and in our society. And what we're gonna find and what we're gonna discover is that there's many places in the scripture where God does a great work of deliverance when God's people get to this place where they're spiritually broken. If you've come to RMC for any period of time, you know that we go through books of the Bible. On Wednesday night, we're going Genesis through Revelation. We're currently in 1 Corinthians. On the weekends, we'll go through different books of the Bible. 
I would have no way of picking this passage for the events that took place in our country this week. This is where the Lord has us in his word. But so many times, it's completely applicable to what we're experiencing. And what we see with a Supreme Court decision in our land should cause some spiritual mourning. We should have a response of being broken before God. And so I want to address that quickly and and give you a few thoughts to think about it, as I'm sure you're already considering this. First, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's biblical. We find the definition of truth and right and wrong inside of who God is, not inside of culture or even inside of any government. And if you haven't learned this yet, you need to because we already have some laws in Colorado that aren't biblical, though it's legal. Marijuana is legal, but it's not necessarily biblical. God clearly addresses not to be under the control of a substance, but to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. So we need to look to God for what is the definition of marriage, not looking to laws to be the definition. Now, having said that, Laws are important. I hope you understand that. This is a big crossroads in our country. I think it's easy for us as people just to kind of dismiss this and not see the magnitude of the fact that our laws are changing. Laws reflect the heart of a country. Laws reflect the heart of our leadership. Laws do have impact. And we know this from a biblical perspective that God says when the righteous are raised up into leadership in Proverbs, that the people rejoice. And we've seen that in our country historically. When we have godly leaders, when we have laws that reflect the word of God, there's blessing that goes out to society. There's blessing that goes out to people. We're to be salt and light. That's God's definition for us as a church. I think it is important to get involved with the political process that does result in the laws that we have. You've been given an amazing right to be able to vote. Take the scriptures and vote in in that context. Now, having said that, there is something that's more important than laws, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mission in this life is to point people to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And what we're seeing in our culture, in our society, should cause us to respond and say, there's a lot of people that need to know Christ as their Savior. There's a lot of people that are missing out on what God's design is for life, and it should spur us to take out the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. You've heard me say this some over the last few years, but if you're not alive for Christ, what are you waiting for? Come on, what are you waiting for? If you're complacent in your faith in Jesus Christ, if God's word is not a part of your life, if you don't find yourself on your knees, if you don't find yourself in worship, If a relationship with God is just minimized to an hour and 15 minutes a week, what are you waiting for? These are clear signs that God has given to us to saying, church, be awake. And though there's a lot of discouraging news, I think it's encouraging because when things are dark, the light shines the brighter. And the question is, will the church rise to these opportunities that God is giving us and what we should then respond is in a place of mourning and grieving over the Lord for the spiritual condition of our land and the spiritual condition of our own lives. We have been heading in this direction for a long time. This is not just something that happened overnight. We've been in this digression as a society and it's very easy to get lulled asleep 
where we're not even broken anymore. We're not broken over what we see in our culture. We're not broken over what we see in our own lives. And the children of Israel got sick of it. They got sick of it. You read Judges, you read First and Second Samuel, sin is not new, and we stop in First Samuel 7, and they lamented. They lamented before the Lord. They were broken before God. God's presence is not in the center of our lives. And are we broken over that as well? What you weep over reveals what you really care about. Think about that for just a moment. What you weep over reveals what you really care about. And sometimes we weep more over a car that got wrecked, a job that got lost, a roof that got ruined, and all of those things have their place in our lives, but we should be weeping a lot more over sin in our own lives and people that don't know Christ as our savior. When was the last time that we shed tears over the thought of people not going to heaven, people going to hell, not having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And Israel, at this moment in time, they begin to weep over the things that God weeps for. I wanna give you a few snapshots of other places in scripture when God's people mourned and how it led to deliverance, it led to God moving. I wanna read from Daniel 3, or Daniel 9, verse 3. I'll, re I'll read this to you, you don't have to turn there. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Daniel's in captivity. He knows the prophecy from Jeremiah. They would be in captivity for 70 years. It's coming up to the end of that time. And he cries out to God, in an attitude of lamenting, of mourning. Similar with Nehemiah, chapter one, verse four, it says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah prayed for four months before there was a breakthrough. But his prayers, God used his prayers to break open the door for the children of Israel to come back out of captivity and build the wall of protection around the temple. Church, these are a individual, one person, Daniel, Nehemiah, that got to this place of mourning and weeping and God moved. And has God changed? God hasn't changed. I think he's waiting for a group of individuals that get to this place of spiritual brokenness before him. Let's look at one other passage. Please turn with me in your Bible to James chapter four. Now let's read verses seven through 10. James four, seven through 10. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning 
and your joy to gloom. To be honest with you, when I heard the news of the Supreme Court's decision on Friday, my initial response was, well, it was pretty clear that this is the way that it was going to go prior to this event. And I was pretty largely unmoved by it. Because as you studied the issue, everybody predicted that this is how the judges would come down. And then as the news began to sink in more and more and more and more, it got me to a place of mourning and weeping and crying out to the Lord. And I wouldn't be surprised if I'm not the only one that kind of has that response. And it's not just a particular issue, but it's the whole culture of sin. And then God's word says that let judgment start in the house of God. The most concerning thing is how we as believers are adopting cultural views instead of biblical views. God wants to do something real. He wants to do something deep. It's got to start somewhere. And we get so calloused to, well, this is just the way things are. This is the way that my life is. I really don't expect deliverance in, in my own life. Making excuses for sin. It's a lot easier to pick on society. It's a lot harder to look at my own life. I think it's very rare, church, to get to verse 1. If this is the only thing we cover this morning and we don't finish the rest of the chapter, if God just stopped us in our tracks right here and said, will you weep for the things that I weep over? Will you allow your heart to get soft? Will you look at your own life, your own relationship with me and start to go, I want the presence of God in my life. If there's anything that we would weep over, it should be over the presence of God being manifested, experienced in our lives in our church, in our country, and Israel got to this place. It's not a quick read over. I think that God desires for this study to have some weight, to have some brokenness, to move us into some deeper places of prayer. Do we believe in the power of prayer? Nehemiah did, Daniel did. Do I believe in the power of prayer? Because if I believe in the power of prayer, I'm gonna pray more than I'm currently praying. We're going to pray more than we're currently praying. We're not going to just stay, but we're going to begin to live that the greatest place that we can go is to the throne room of God. We're talking to the King of Kings, the creator of all of the universe. It's extremely timely for us. Let's look at verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all of the house of Israel, saying, point number two, M&M, message. Samuel spoke. Samuel spoke, Samuel spoke, Samuel spoke. And what did he speak? He spoke the word of God, the message of God, which is the power of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the heart. And will we speak the word of God? Will we speak the message of God? And it's one thing for us to go, okay, let's put this on pastors. Let's put this on authors. Let's put this on those that are on the radio and podcasts and all of these things. But you've been given a stage. You've been given a microphone. You've been given an opportunity to speak the message of God. And if there's going to be deliverance in our lives, it's going to come through the word of God. Agreed? 
And we're going to see that their spiritual condition was right in the hearts of people and the word of God was spoken. The message was declared. What stage do you have? What opportunities has God given you? Is it with your kids? And are you speaking the word of God to them? Are you taking the time to instill those spiritual truths in their hearts and lives? Is there some opportunities in your neighborhood, with family, with friends, with coworkers, as we look to do this outreach as a body and invite people to America the Beautiful Park and go out to our neighborhood, we want this to be a lifestyle, and that's challenging. A lifestyle of reaching out to others, a lifestyle of speaking the word of God. I personally believe that studying the word of God gets extremely exciting when we come with the attitude of God, I wanna live it and share it. I wanna live it and share it. I wanna speak forth the word of God and see the power that comes through God's word. Remember the story of Esther, this young woman who is elevated to be the queen. The children of Israel are in captivity. There's this plot to completely annihilate the nation of Israel, genocide. She has access to go to the king, but it may cost her her life. You don't go to the king without an appointment. Mordecai, her uncle, comes to her and says, Esther, for such a time as this, And if you don't go talk to the king, God will raise up deliverance from some other place. But his heart is to use you. God doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. Church, God wants to use us individually and corporately. We are on the planet for such a time as this. But there's something inside of us that goes, you know, if I speak the word of God to my kids, they may reject me. If I speak the word of God to my family, they may ostracize me. If I speak the word of God at my workplace, I may come back next week at unemployed and Eric, it's your fault, you know? Use wisdom, speak the truth in love, look for the opportunities that God's providing, but does the word of God mean more to us than our paycheck? Does the word of God mean more to us than this relationship and going the best thing for my kids, the best thing for my neighbor, this person that I'm invested in is for me to open my mouth and to speak the word of God. Don't let those opportunities go. The fruit that we're gonna see in the rest of this chapter is because Israel mourned and Samuel spoke the message of God. This is what he said, if you return to the Lord with all of your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. We want the deliverance from the Philistines without the repentance before God and dealing with the idols in our lives. We want the situations to change. We want a better economy. We want a better educational system for for our kids. We want the prosperity that we once enjoyed as a country, but we're not interested in repentance before God. Israel wasn't after deliverance, they were after God. And there's a huge difference in our lives. It's it's huge for us to be coming before God saying, God, I want you to get me out of this jam that I'm in. God, I want you to free me from addiction. I want you to provide for me financially. I want you to fix this relationship. And it's another thing to come before God and go, God, you're awesome. You're the creator. You're the lover of my soul. You died for me and rose again. I wanna be in relationship with you. I wanna walk with you. And the deliverance comes out of that authenticity. 
It comes out of, out of that place where we come to God in our hearts, we turn back to him in our hearts. God's always concerned with the heart. And then followed up with that, heart commitment is action. Put away the foreign gods, the Ashtaroths, the Baals that are among you. Ashtaroth was the god of pleasure, was tied in with sexual sin. Baal was the god of prosperity. As they offered to Baal, they believed there would be rain and it would result in a good crop, which would mean a lot of money. Baal and Ashtaroth are the gods of today. I want pleasure. No matter what, whether it's right or wrong, if it's pleasure, I'll take it. I want prosperity. Do we want a relationship with God if it meant that it was messing up with pleasure and prosperity? And God says here, you can't mix the two. If you're returning to me with all of your heart, the idols have to go and serve him only. Matthew 6.24 says, you can't have two masters. Jesus said it. You'll hate one and you'll, you'll love the other. Are we at that place in our own lives that we go, you know what? The idol's got to go. And when there's a heart commitment to God, it's going to be followed up with action. And then the last thing is deliverance. The deliverance comes out of that authentic, genuine, real relationship with the Lord. Verse 4, so the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and they served the Lord only. They followed through. This is our third M. It's motion. It's motion. This is where we begin to see movement in our text. There's mourning. There's the message of God that goes out. Now there's motion. The people repented. They followed through. Is there idols that need to be dealt with in our hearts and our lives and that commitment to serve the Lord only? God's then going to respond and he's going to deliver them from the Philistines. And Samuel said, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord. Mizpah geographically has historical reference for the children of Israel. In Genesis 31, we see Jacob and Laban coming to an agreement, a place of peace at Mizpah. Also in Judges 20, just prior to 1 Samuel, we see the children of Israel gathering to this place for repentance. And Samuel calls them to Mizpah and says, I will pray for you. And I think part of what God is doing in our midst and in, in our lives is he's wanting to bring believers together. Seeing the need for worship together. Seeing the need to be in this place together. Seeing the need to pray for one another. What did Hebrews tell us? As you see the day approaching, do not forsake assembling yourselves together. When there's a movement of God, people of God are going to rally together in prayer and in unity. We need one another. And in this attitude of repentance, God calls us to confess to one another. James 5 says to confess to one another, to pray for one another that we might be healed. So here I am struggling with a sin. God wants me to speak it to him, but also speak it to a brother or sister in Christ. Why do I got to confess it to a brother or sister in Christ? Can't I just confess it to God? Because it expresses brokenness, humility, and accountability. So when someone opens up to you confessing sin, what is your job to do? It's to pray for them in that moment. Not to fix them, to pray for healing. To pray that God would do a work of deliverance in their lives. It's a beautiful thing to see God's people gathered together. In verse 8, So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said, 
there, we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. The drink offering is a picture of a life that's being poured out before God. They're saying, God, our lives belong to you. Fasting is the need for God. It's the spiritual over the physical. Would God move us in such a way that we would give up some meals to seek the Lord, to be close to him, to be close to his heart? I've got to be reminded that the spiritual is more important than the physical. There's four times a day that are my most favorite times. I have four meal times. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a late night snack. And sometimes it's five or six. And to say, you know what? I need something even more than physical food. I need the Lord. Man shall not live by bread alone. And then there's this confession, God, we've sinned before you. God's sweet spot, if you would, is brokenness and humility to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. In verse seven, now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. What does the enemy do when he sees you getting serious about a relationship with God? What is the enemy gonna do when we get broken over the things that God's broken over? When we begin to speak the message of God, is Satan and his cohort of demons gonna go, oh, that's awesome. I'm so thankful for them that they're lining up their family with God's word, that they're making prayer a priority, that they're broken over sin. Of course, immediately the enemy is gonna launch an attack. So we need to expect that. What did we read in the book of James from chapter four? Submit to God, resist the enemy, and he's gonna flee from you. Put on the armor of God, stand your ground. If you don't have any attack spiritually, it may just mean that we're living our Christian life in complete complacency. The enemy doesn't have to attack us. We're no threat. We don't have a heart for the lost. We don't have a hunger for God. We don't have a desire to see people know the love of God. Satan's going, great. Awesome. But that moment that our hearts touched and we begin to passionately pursue Jesus Christ, the enemy's going to launch that attack. And the Philistines are coming, the Israelites, they heard of it, and they're afraid. Don't be afraid. If your response to all of these things is fear, man, don't be afraid. Keep your eyes on the Lord. God truly does reign. In verse 8, so the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. This is very different from earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. When they faced the Philistines prior, what did they say? Get the ark, the ark is gonna save us. But now they're saying only God can save us. Samuel, would you pray for us? If God's doing a work in your life this morning, get some people praying for you. Don't be too proud. Find that Samuel in your life, someone that you know that's gonna be faithful to pray for you. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. I tend to think practically, or at least I think I think practically. Who knows if I do or not, but I try to put myself in the situations that we read in Scripture. And here comes the enemy. Everybody's worshiping. They're not prepared for battle. The news gets to Samuel, and Samuel offers a lamb unto the Lord. My mind would say, hey guys, don't you think we should arm up here? 
Don't you think we should prepare for this attack? Like the Philistines are, are really coming. This, I believe in worship, but this is not a good time to worship, you know? But it shows the value and the importance of worship, that the battle is won and lost in worship. And why a lamb? Because the lamb's innocent. What has the lamb done wrong? This is a sin offering before the Lord. This is part of their confession of sin, that there has to be an innocent sacrifice for their sin. It points to Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of God that was slain for us. We worship because of the lamb of God. Verse 10 Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel, really starting to feel the pressure. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Why did God choose thunder? Because Baal was the god of weather. Baal was the one that was supposed to provide rain. Baal was one of the gods of the Philistines. God is humbling them in a way that's very dear to them. He's showing it's not Baal that controls the weather. I control the weather. We have some great thunder and lightning here in Colorado. I can't imagine what this was like. So great in force that they're confused. And this confusion gives an opportunity for Israel. Verse 11, and the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Beth Car. Israel took the opportunity that God had provided. This is very important for us. God is working, there's movement, there's motion happening, and the children of Israel didn't step back and go, well, the enemy's confused. This is a great time for a cappuccino. The enemy's confused. This is a great time to grill up some hamburgers. Let's turn on the TV. Let's, let's see what's happening. They said, let's press in. Let's pursue the enemy. They're, they're confused, and because of that comes a great victory. Is there starting to be some movement in your life spiritually, and there's a hunger for the Word of God? Don't sit back on that. Get in the Word of God. Read 10 chapters. Read 15. Sit down and read a whole book of the Bible. God's doing something. You're hungry for God's Word. Don't go, oh, that's so nice. I'm so thankful that I've got that hunger for, for God's Word. Is there a passion for prayer that's stirring this, this morning? Then go for it. Go on a prayer walk with the Lord. Do you see God doing something in the life of someone around you? They're a believer and they're really being encouraged as you're spending time with them? Spend more time with them. Is there an unbeliever that's starting to have an openness to the things of God? Pray for them more. Say, you know what, this week I wanna make sure that I spend some time with them. I don't think Israel would have saw the victory that God was intending if they didn't pursue the open door. God does the work. And he wants us to pursue the open doors that he provides. And verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. They have a memorial of this victory. Set up memorials in your life. What's the greatest stone of memorial that we have as the church? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb. How do we know that there's certain victory because Christ is risen? How do we know that Christ has overcome the world because of the resurrection? We have something greater than the Ebenezer stone. How do we know that God's gonna bring victory in our lives personally? Because sin has been buried with Jesus Christ and he is risen. I need to pick up the pace a little bit, so let's hit the accelerator. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they did not 
come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. God wants to restore areas that we forfeited to the enemy. Areas in our lives that we've given over to Satan's control. He wants to restore as we seek him. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He's the last judge of Israel. God raising up someone to bring deliverance. As we'll study next week, Israel's going to transition from having judges to kings, ultimately rejecting God's leadership. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all of those places. But he also returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. I like this about Samuel. He went around declaring the word of God, visiting several cities, but he always came home. And what did he have in his home? An altar to the Lord. Is your home an altar to the Lord? Is your home a place of worship to the Lord? We all want home to be a refuge for ourselves and others. How does that take place? It's not the size of the home. It's not the condition of the yard. It's not the kind of food that you provide. It's none of those things. It's a, is it a place of worship? Do I have an altar that's built in my home unto the Lord? I think we get a window into the secret of Samuel's life and that he was a worshiper to God. A few questions to consider. Am I seeking deliverance or am I seeking Christ? It's a convicting question. Do I just want the Philistines to be dealt with? Do I just want things to change in America? Do I want the good old days? Or do we want Christ? Am I seeking Christ? Am I repenting because I long to be close to Christ? What causes me to mourn? Make it personal. What causes you to mourn? Maybe one of the scariest things about the day that we live in is the hardness of heart. We're susceptible to it, aren't we? I don't mourn anymore. I don't cry anymore. I don't weep anymore. I just bunker down and keep doing my thing. Well, Jesus wept. He wept over the spiritual condition of Jerusalem. Say, I long for you to be drawn near to my heart, but you would not. And he wept. Are we at the place where we mourn? Am I willing to speak and hear God's message? Am I willing to hear and speak God's message? And then am I willing to act upon God's word? Am I willing to be a doer of God's word? Let's pray together. Father, I just confess my own hardness of heart to you and I get busy doing my life and I fail to see things from your perspective. God, and we want to stop and pause as a church this morning and pray that you would forgive us. Lord, would you forgive us as a country? We've rejected you. We've pushed you out of every facet of society. We don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in the workplace, the marketplace. We don't want you in the government. We don't want to seek you 
when we have our laws. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness of the condition of the church as a whole. Lord, we're complacent and a lot of times we're very lackadaisical, but we get a little more personal where we look at our own hearts and our own lives. Would you give us that spirit of mourning? Blessed are those that mourn for theirs is the kingdom of God. We ask that your word would bring in us a humility and a brokenness to seek your face like we haven't done in the past. And we do ask that we would see many people come to know you. We pray for your word to explode in our lives, to explode in our mouth, that you would give us a hunger and a passion for your word, a desire to share that very naturally through the power of your Holy Spirit, but also with determination. And we do pray for your movement, God. Would you thunder? Would you shake? God, we need you to move. We need your hand to, to be upon us. Lord, I thank you for Rocky Mountain Calvary. Would you be gracious to us? We continue to invite you to be the head of our church. In Jesus' name, amen.